0: This show contains language that is unsuitable for children.
1: We make
0: Welcome to Straight Vibes, No Chasers. Raw talk on coming out of the closet about our fears and why we're so hell-bent on resisting our highest good. This podcast focuses on the African-American experience concerning fear and our long-standing romance with mediocrity. You can follow and comment on the show topics on Instagram at SBNC or go to PennyMurray.com, where you can also find out more about Dr. Murray's work, her book, Giving Myself Permission, and the African-American Council on Fear. Now, here's your host, Dr. Penny Murray.
1: Hey, and welcome back to Straight Vibes, No Chasers from Dallas, Texas. You know, um, back in the day, in the United States, it was illegal to teach my slave ancestors to read or write. Even though my ancestors were denied this basic skill, they found another way. They used songs to communicate with each other loved ones who were close by, but forbidden to be together. Songs would travel across the distance to let them know that they were loved and thought of and that they were not alone. Songs were extremely important when they provided directions about when and where and how to escape slave bondage. Even those who were maybe too afraid or too feeble to make the journey to freedom as runaway slaves, they used songs as well to warn those who could run uh, about the dangers or obstacles along their route to freedom. So as you can see, songs were very, very important. Songs like Follow the Drinking Gourd. That song told runaway slaves to follow the pointer stars within the, the Big Dipper, And those stars aligned with the North Star that would guide them to freedom. Another song uh, was called The Song of the Free. The song says, I am on my way to freedom land. The dire effects of slavery I can no longer stand. My soul is vexed within me more to think that I am a slave. I'm now resolved to strike the blow for freedom or the grave. Uh, you know, in the Christian Bible, Joe kind of said something of the same thing as related to the conditions of his life. And, you know, he said, uh, my soul chooses strangling and death rather than a life like this hell, even in, uh, the emancipation proclamation, it says, give me liberty or give me death. We are at a fork in the road where we all must choose. One big choice that is in front of us right now is to commit to striking a blow for not just a form of fake freedom or freedom for a few, but absolute freedom for all of us. This is the debt America owes to African-Americans and Native Americans especially. And this is a debt that is far past due. The most significant blow any of us can strike in the name of freedom is to get out and vote by any means necessary. Now, I strongly encourage early voting, but if you miss the early voting dates, then like First Lady Michelle Obama said, if you are able-bodied, go to the polls to vote. Pack you some food and snacks, put on you some comfortable shoes and clothes, and take a few chairs so that you can share. And stay in that line until you cast your vote. I'm your host, Dr. Penny Murray. You know, in our current landscape, a defining spirit of wakefulness is emerging. I can see it in the movements, the voices, and the actions of of people all around me. And the universe is basically forcing all of us to face a very fundamental law, Nothing can change for us without first our own consent. Because we rule our own destiny, evolution emerges for us as individuals, a collective community, a country, when we consciously allow it to manifest itself, or we give passionate energy to something that brings evolution about But when there is a lack of human or social advancement, it's really because evolution is being repressed or we have no emotional investment in the success of the evolution. And there are many in this country who not just want to suppress progress, they want to drag us backwards. As we stand at the the doorway just days away from uh, the final election day, literally it made me think. And the one thing that came to my mind was after the election 2017, Trump met with a group of African-American civil rights leaders where he narcissistically declared the low turnout among black voters had actually helped him defeat Hillary Clinton. In Trump's own words, he said, many blacks didn't go out to vote for Hillary. That was almost as good as getting their vote. This came to my mind and there was two troubling things about his pious revelation. First, not voting or casting a protest vote rarely gets the attention or the intended message across to those it's intended for. And oftentimes it has an adverse effect as we see. So let me say this, Kanye West is designed to be a distraction or a protest vote. Don't be fooled, all right? Secondly, uh, as I thought about this, I I grew up hearing my mother say, you have to teach people how to treat you. African Americans who just didn't bother to vote, actually told Trump and the many other white imperialists that we're good with whatever they do to us as a community. And 2020 has proven that they heard us loud and clear. You know, they say that silence is approval. And when we chose not to vote as a black community, that silence, as Trump said, was his approval. So our cries that black lives matter means nothing because we showed them how to treat us when we decided not to vote, when we kept our vote silent. So black America, we we can course correct by voting this time and putting people in position that will be most receptive to evolution. And so for me, In honor of the thousands of people who died from COVID-19 and won't be able to vote, I'm committed to voting in the spirit of their life. With every passing day of this shit show, I become more emotionally invested in doing what I can to bring about evolution. For every black life that was lost in the year of 2020, by police murders, I stood in line waiting to vote because their lives were taken and they were not able to vote. As an African-American woman, I'm invested because historically I've been disrespected, unprotected, unsupported, and neglected and held down by this country's stay in your place mentality. So I no longer want to live in a pseudo state of freedom that condemns my very identity and ignores the deep covert inequalities that makes sure African Americans remain as second-class citizens. Our quality of life is still being determined by an oppressive social system hell bent on our destruction, but our votes can begin to change those things. I am sickened to see the resurgence of black men and women being slaughtered by police without remorse or penalty of law. But our votes can begin to change those things. Listen, I'm hoping we will look back on 2020 as the year that gave us a clear vision about the soul of America, its vulnerabilities, its crimes, its injustices, and its brokenness. I'm hoping this is the year that a social evolution of equality begins, especially for African Americans. The title of this show asks the question, can you hear freedom's song and remain silent? I don't think so. You can see this, at least I do, as the consciousness of many Americans have awakened However faint, every voice adds to the power of that song of freedom, making it louder and more assertive and more meaningful. And even as the world looks on and adds a global voice to this song of freedom, I just believe that something evolutionary is happening. And as African Americans, we have to be at the forefront, continuing to assert the lyrics of our freedom, asserting the song of equality. But before we can affect the intense change needed in our current social system, we we have to do the self-work of healing what Bertram Karen calls our historical black scars. Now that that means dragging all of our fears, angers, and hatred out of our psychological closets. I'm talking about acknowledging the uncomfortable truth about decades of both our fears of being powerful and our resentment of feeling powerless as African-Americans in this country. But this is when shit starts to get scary because we haven't learned as African Americans, how to truly live in the providence of our power and purpose. Instead, we've been conditioned to use our power and creative genius to manifest for the profits of others. It's even scarier because we're not encouraged to honestly examine our deep feelings as a means of healing and clarity. Instead, the dominant message is to repress our fears, deny our animosities, and go along with the status quo of life with blind obedience as if it was gospel. Undoing this mindset is a part of the sacred journey of starting and completing our rite of passage. And that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, Amidst the the seeming chaos of, of protests and riots in the streets across America, there is an undertone of unrealized freedom. Now, you can interpret this any way you want to, but if you care to really listen beneath the surface of the social discontent and protests, you'll hear our ancestors' song that has traveled across distance and time. Our soul is vexed even more to think that our life is still not valued. If it's true that no one can hear a song of freedom and remain silent, then we must realize, as Martin Luther King Jr. began to realize, freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. So with that, my thoughts are a sacred civil rights movement that reintroduces the legal doctrine in the constitutional law, separate but equal. By this, I mean severing the, the destructive emotional attachments we have for white approval and acceptance. We don't need to engage in violence and destruction to demand our freedom because African-Americans are so intelligent and creative. Our intellect, our creativity is far beyond just destruction and violence. We're capable of so much more than that. And I I think that that's really in in retrospect, as I look back on uh, Martin Luther King's fight, maybe that was his same mindset what we need to do is focus on reconnecting with our inherent sovereignty and our freedom. We accomplish this by completing our ceremonial rite of passage. Now I say a ceremonial rite of passage because I believe that we never, we got started when emancipation happened, but it was destroyed through Jim Crow. And so The completion of our rites of passage that would have brought us into real uh, citizenship never occurred. So according to Arnold Van Gnep's theory, there are three stages to a ceremonial rite of passage, separation, transition, and reintegration. And, you know, we do a lot of repeatedly fighting to go through the process or the stage of separation. But then we've gotten stuck there and we never move. We, that's what I mean by we have to complete the, the, the rite of passage because we've never gotten to the, the transition and then to be able to reintegrate in the way in which we saw best. So to me, the thought of a whole ethnic group collectively being prepared to move from a state of oppression to our rightful state of freedom is profound and it's beyond belief I mean, I get excited about it, but then there's also this measure of anxiety that happens because, you know, it isn't even possible, but I'm going to say, don't sleep on this because over the last decade, many inconceivable things have in fact happened. So I want to focus on the first stage of our rites of passage and that's separation. And how we seem to be stuck in this stage as if we're kind of lost in some maze trying to find our way out of it. So I'll be talking about that. I'll I'll discuss the other two stages in upcoming shows as well. But I think it's important to just kind of look at separation. But before we get into today's discussion, I gotta do my two cents. I, I like to see this segment as my contribution to Black History 365. And since I live in Texas, you know, I focus on the ancestors and their contributions um, to developing the state of Texas. There has been a lot that our ancestors have done to make Texas the state that it is uh, in all of its piety and its resistance to you know acknowledge and give equal rights to African-Americans. There would be no state of Texas had not our ancestors uh, contributed in the way that they did, not just the African-Americans, but Native Americans as well. In honor of the 2020 Democratic vice presidential nominee, uh, Kamala Harris, I- I'm dedicating the next two episodes to the women ancestors that uh, focused on the political aspects of our life as blacks in Texas. Uh, The first one I want to focus in on is Christia Adair. She was born in 1893 in Victoria, Texas. Um, She became a a, a black civil rights activist and suffragist here in the state of, of Texas. Fast forward in 1918, She married and moved to Kingsville, Texas, where she became one of the few black suffragists in the state. And African-American women were in the forefront of really uh, getting the right for women to vote on the ballot and getting that effort passed. And so they would, she was one that would go door to door campaigning for women's right to vote in Texas. In all that black women did to get the law passed, the law passed, but it passed for white women of Texas. They won the right to vote with the passage of the 19th amendment, uh, which occurred in 1918, but discrimination in the form of poll tax, white primary laws, and of course, Ku Klux Klan disenfranchised the black women who actually were really uh, instrumental in getting the vote passed. And so they were again, disenfranchised from even voting and hurt and angered that she still couldn't vote and or she was denied the ability to vote after all she had done miss adair shifted her life's focus to racial issues um, that were occurring in the state of Texas and so in 1920 when presidential candidate Warren G Harding showed up in Kingsville on one of his campaign stops miss adair deliberately situated several uh, black children close to Harding, expecting him to greet them and shake their hands. But when old dude got through talking, he just reached over the black children to shake the hands of the white listeners that were sitting behind the children. So again, offended and insulted uh, by Harding's blatant bigotry. Uh, Adair, she vowed never to be a Republican ever. Uh, In 1925, Miss Adair and her husband moved to Houston, where she became one of the early members of the local NAACP branch and started a long career as a civil rights leader. Uh, She was one of Houston's first blacks uh, to serve as a precinct judge of the third ward. And in 1966, she was one of the first of two blacks elected to the state democratic committee. Uh, Christia Adair remained active uh, in the communities uh, around Houston until she died in 1989 at the beautiful age of 96. All right, now the topic for this episode. Um I was attending my course in miracles study group uh, a few weeks ago and we got into this discussion about our own sense of freedom. And I'm close to the older couple who facilitates the class. Uh, but in the middle of the conversation in regards to freedom and, and what it all means, I can't even remember what, what we were all talking about. The husband Bill says, okay, I have something I've got to say. And so his tone was really like he was getting ready to expose the elephant in the room and we were all on zoom. So we all kind of stopped talking and, and focused on him And after a couple of seconds, he says, Penny, when we first saw you, I said to myself, that's a woman who knows she's free. That didn't just start. I think from a very young age, you've always known you were free. And then he asked me if what he was saying was true. And literally his statement really totally caught me off guard because I wasn't expecting whatever he was going to say. I wasn't expecting it to be directed towards me. So I was shocked. Uh, and for a few seconds, I just, you know, I, I guess it would have seemed as if I was contemplating this question because I was just like, stop this, this looking. To be honest, I don't even know what I might've said that would have motivated him to make that assessment about me and to say that. And for whatever reason, his statement triggered a sense of resentment in me. But I, I didn't feel comfortable discussing uh, those feelings of resentment, first of all, because I didn't really even know what, what caused them. And so I just decided not to even say anything about it. So after a few seconds, I finally responded uh, with the most intelligent you know response I could give uh, because I had thought about a, a story about a little boy on a school bus being harassed by bullies. Now, some may be familiar with this little story because it's told so many different ways. But anyway... Whenever the little boy went to get up, to get off the bus, the bullies would push him back down. And so by the third time the little boy went to get up, the bullies pushed him back down again and, and they they held him there. And the little boy kept struggling trying to get up, but he, but he really couldn't. So after a little after a while, the little boy finally says with conviction, you might be holding me down on the outside, but inside myself, I'm standing up. That's the only thing that could come to mind with Bill's statement, you know, when he asked me that at the moment. But now in retrospect, I realize that there's substance to that little story. And and Bill's statement definitely struck a nerve. So I've been pulling shit out of my psychological closet for weeks now. I'm trying to figure out if I consciously ever knew that I was free. And if I did, when? Because as long as I've struggled with fear and self doubt, one would think I never knew or never felt free. And and then I started asking myself more questions as it related uh, to this thing called freedom. Did I surrender my freedom to the psychological prison of fear and self doubt? And if I did, did I do it willingly or unconsciously? If I did surrendered it, when, and what were the circumstances behind my surrender? Now. The more I pulled crap out of my psychological closet to figure this thing out, because Bill asked me, was his statement true? I couldn't even say whether his statement was true or not. I don't know. I never, ever really even thought about it in that way. So of course, this led to even more soul searching questions. But you know what? I suspect that many within the African American community right now are experiencing the same kind of internal unrest and some soul searching questions are coming to surface. And if you're not already facing it, you will be facing it. Something that is going to stir a a different kind of want within us to know what that inherent freedom really is all about, both as an individual and from a community standpoint, there's a lot stirring right now. There is an energy moving uh, throughout the universe that's causing many of us to be extremely sensitive to the grievances of racial injustice, economic and gender inequality, and the internal strife within the African-American community. When you think about the stirring, this this energy that's moving right now, it feels really like a tremendous emotional burden to try and process it all. And I, I know for me, it, it has been overwhelming, but we are here at this moment, having these experiences because we are a part of a grander solution. There is a zeitgeist within the universe that is happening collectively, not just in the United States, but across the globe. And whether we want to accept it or not, each of us has a substantial task to carry out or a role to play in this evolution towards freedom. The freedom that I'm really referring to relates to speaking, creating, and living our truth without fearing the power of our voice, our imagination, and our resourcefulness, But here again is where the glitch happens. Our inner spirit really knows the route to freedom, but we're, we're taught to distrust the inner song that guides us and warns us of the obstacles along the way. And since our so-called emancipation, African Americans have actually faced a battle on two fronts externally and internally. And what I mean by that is for decades, we've remained really vigilant about the external threats against our freedom, while at the same time, we tiptoe around the self-imposed threats to our freedom. To, To make this plain, we're good at raising all kinds of hell about the social injustices that threaten our quality of life, but the most significant impact on our quality of life as individuals and as a community is internal. And yet what's done to us by us is often reduced to a post on social media or a watered down conversation about our cultural infighting that quickly pivots back to the external injustices that we face within the black community. Now, listen, I am all, all the way down with black lives matter, but when the dust settles, we have to contend with the fact that surface change is not real change that's what we have been experiencing and accepting for way too long real long lasting change occurs when we recognize that the biggest fight we have yet to fight and this in this fight towards freedom is actually undoing the historical brainwashing and traumas that left the black psyche disfigured and scarred. This, this scarring, it, it literally is interwoven in our psychological DNA. It really influences our everyday lives and how we interact with others, especially within our own community. And it hinders our progress socially, uh, economically, it hinders us. Black folks get real pissed off when you mention black on black crime. I mean, shit, I get pissed off too. I'm I'm usually pissed off when it's used to deflect or to shift the focus from the police brutality um, and the historical bigotry that we have to endure in this country. But after all of our social defiance, protests, and righteous anger, Continuing to disregard our internal strife is our undoing. You know, I'm serious. This is real. Hell, as far as I'm concerned, black on black crime includes that whole light skin, dark skin, good hair, nappy hair bullshit. It's black men dishonoring black women by calling us hoes and bitches in song lyrics and videos and barbershop conversations. Hell, I was just reading something on Instagram just the other day, and, you know, the word was hoes and bitches, and I'm like, seriously? Black-on-black crime is the crusade against black love and black family. It's the many single-parent households ran by black women who work shitty jobs trying to make ends meet to provide for our children. We're underpaid, undersupported by the men who father our children and the community that's all around us. It's like there's a disconnect. But the highest price of black on black crime is paid by our children. It's paid by our creative genius and it's paid by our social advancements. We can go back and forth on this issue all we want. But getting pissed off and denying the internal conflicts and the emotional traumas within our communities really enables the external forces that stand against us to be more effective in neutralizing our political and our social conversations. I mean, yeah, hell, it's more comfortable to point out other people's faults and demand that they change than to be self-reflective, self-examining, and address our own self-sabotaging behaviors. But straight vibes, no chasers. Black lives won't really matter to other people until African Americans demonstrate that black life matters amongst ourselves. To reiterate what I said earlier, you have to teach people how to treat you. And that starts with demonstrating how we value ourselves first as black Americans and then each other as a community. Listen, hear me clearly. Any and everything we do to address the social inequalities directed at the African American community in this country is fundamental for our overall well-being. But our challenges are not just one-dimensional. We have multi-dimensional multidimensional uh, areas that need attention. And so we have to address them from a multidimensional approach. And we all have a different purpose in achieving the same result. If the result is freedom, true freedom, to be able to create, speak, and live our truth, we all have to play a part in it. Let me just say this metaphorically. We might be a part of the same choir singing the same lyrics of freedom. We have different singing parts. Some are altos, some are tenors. You you get the drift. Just we're singing different parts, but the lyrics are the same or the end goals of freedom are the same. All right. Listen, a movement addressing the psychological injustices inflicting on the African-American psyche, advocating for healing justice is just as significant to our overall well-being as our external fight for freedom. So there is an enormous need for activism on several fronts, social, physical, spiritual, political. I don't give a damn, you name it. We need people who are committed, who recognize that that's their life's purpose and be about that business. I uh, saw an interview with Doc Rivers, the head coach of the Los Angeles Clippers, where he responded to a question as related to the killing of of Jacob Blake. Um, And I watched the entire interview and I saw the sorrow in this man's face and I felt the grief in his voice. I mean, I felt it deep when he said, we keep loving this country as African-Americans and this country doesn't love us back. It just Seeing that and hearing that, that experience alone literally reinforced my commitment to advocate for our rite of passage, especially from a psychological perspective. I've been in some really shitty relationships that were loveless and abusive And at first I would convince myself that if I gave it just a little more time, he would reciprocate the respect and adoration that I gave him. And yeah, I would complain about his behavior, but I still stayed in the relationship after a while, My complaints about his actions in disregard towards me became nothing more than bitching and nagging. The person inflicting the pain just becomes numb to anything we say or do. And you know, after a while, they know they have the upper hand because we stay. So in essence, we're teaching them how to treat us. After being in a couple of abusive relationships, I I really had to reconsider myself value and, and so now, seriously, I look at it like this. One hurtful act in a relationship can be considered an incident. Two incidents of the same behavior, yeah, it could be viewed as coincidental. But three experiences of the same damn action, that shit is a pattern. And patterns are hard to break. And we have to recognize and admit that we have been in this loveless relationship as Doc Rivers was saying. And while we have been giving love and honor and respect or whatever, we haven't been getting that in return. And so we have to come back and assess the situation. I know for me, when I finally woke up, I'm I'm like, oh, hell no, this ain't working for me. And so That's when you give that, listen, babe, it ain't you, it's me speech. And you get the hell up out of there. While it's not that simple for us as African-Americans, it is that simple. But we just have to commit to it first as individuals and then collectively as a community. Personally, I'm sick of the ongoing racist saga in America that created a mindset within the black psyche to be complicit and co-conspirators in our own undoing. So, you know... (sighs) I really, my focus and my work is not to waste any more time really on what white America is or is not doing to rectify the cruelties of inflicted on the African American race. At this point, I'm like, I don't give a shit. You've shown yourself again and again and again. And so I believe we need to stop focusing all of our emotional energy on heated conversations about White privilege, discrimination, racism, sexism, diversity and inclusion and all the other bullshit topics that we keep spinning our wheels on. My current attitude is this. Hey, white America, you know what? I ain't mad. Y'all created a hellified social system that benefits you. Even though you used my African-American ancestors to obtain what you have, at the end of the day, it was and is intended to benefit white America. So I'm like, since y'all straight now, it's time for us as African-Americans to focus on us and build for us. To go back to Doc Rivers' comments, this country has never loved us back. And I just think it's time for us to give the, it's not you babe speech, it's me. And change our perception as to how we interact within this social system. And and I'm saying this because from my perspective, there is this odd insanity that preoccupies white Americans' consciousness, And this consciousness is really what drives this loveless relationship that we have been in for so many centuries. While white America hoards their unmerited wealth all the the time claiming that African Americans have no right to it, they are equally obsessed with preventing African Americans from becoming self-sufficient and gaining our own wealth. Historically, whenever African-Americans have effectively achieved substantial means of self-sufficiency, once that self-sufficiency, especially from an economic standpoint, begins to threaten the dominance of white capitalism and their social control, white America has literally destroyed whatever we as African-Americans have built up from burning down entire communities, infusing drugs into our neighborhoods, mass incarceration, police brutalities and police murders. The efforts are systematic and malicious. There you know there was an article that appeared in Ebony magazine a few years ago about what really motivated the white violence that destroyed black communities like the one in in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that we know as the Black Wall Street. Josie Pickett did research and she wrote that uh, there was a deep envious desire to put progressive, high achieving African-Americans in their place. And this stay in your place mentality created a wave of domestic white terrorism that to date has led to black insufficiencies. When it comes to our self-preservation, our self-sufficiency, this social system has terrorized us so sadistically that we have learned to fear our intrinsic power. We've gotten to the place where we accept mediocrity as our fate in life. And so we suppress our creative genius, unless, unless We are using it to help white America maintain their ill-gotten wealth. And there is a lingering self-sabotaging madness to this mindset. And I'm not throwing shade because shit, I'm in the same boat. Every day that I wake up and and rack my brain and exhaust my creative energies on the job that I have to maintain my quality of life economically, you know, it, it creates a sense of resentment. So I'm in that same damn hamster wheel. And now I'm at a place where I'm saying, what in the hell can I do? Change the trajectory of how this is going. That we as African Americans can begin to truly experience equality and self-sufficiency on our term. Without the bullshit destruction and violence that happens. We're indoctrinated to be complicit in our own undoing. So we rarely look beyond the bullshit narratives that keep us locked in mediocrity. We don't realize but that like puppets, white imperialists, Continues to use the Willie Lynch strategy to maintain power over the African American quality of life. There's a long-standing argument over the Willie Lynch strategy's authenticity, and uh, you know what? I certainly have my perspective, and I- I'll discuss it. But you know, I'll share those later. But. Whatever your views, we are in full denial if we dismiss the correlation between the Lynch strategy and the lingering self-sabotaging consciousness within the African-American community. The depth of our indoctrination is so acute that white America doesn't have to do a damn thing. We, We have perfected the Willie Lynch strategy of being suspicious, critical, and envious of our own people. Even more damning is this self-imposed restraint method was followed by Jim the Jim Crow era, which further domesticated our spirits to a point of self-loathing and powerlessness. I'll give you an example. African Americans buying power in 2018 uh, was estimated to be $1.3 trillion dollars but we believe we're poor and powerless because we've been conditioned to think with a poverty mindset. When I first saw that 1.3 trillion, that's trillion with a T. I was like, what the, okay. (laughs) But sadly, as the Willie Lynch letter projected, For hundreds, thousands of years, we have been controlled by self-imposed psychological barriers that ensured we would stay in our place. I just call this mind masturbation. Ain't nobody screwing us, but us. We can boast about our ancestors' contributions and how they brought civilization, not to just America, but to the world. We brought the sciences, art, mathematics, language, music, agriculture, and so much more. And yet, despite such a regal bloodline, we have been reduced to simple mass consumers contributing to the economic gap between African Americans and other ethnic groups because we're always spending our dollars everywhere else. And just like white America has an odd sense of insanity that preoccupies their consciousness, so does black America. For decades, we've been so consumed with gaining equality through white acceptance and approval that we put little energy into addressing the psychological injustices that imprisons the consciousness of the African-American community. I watched a a video clip of, of Trevor Noah responding to Kanye West's accusation that the Democratic Party is leading black people around by the nose. It was funny, but to truly get a feel for Kanye's v- views, I-, I wanted to give him a chance. I'm not a fan of Kanye's. Uh, I haven't been a fan of his for for a minute for some of the shenanigans and crazy that he's been doing. Uh, but I-, I watched a couple of the videos where Kanye was being interviewed. On one of those interviews, Kanye confessed he is utterly obsessed with white approval. You know, while that saddens me and it breaks my heart, I was like, kudos to Kanye to take ownership of his shit and admit that he values white acceptance over self-acceptance as a black man. And, and I say kudos to him because most of us feel the same way, but we're in denial about it. We will do any and say anything to deny that that's really what's going on. But much has been written on this topic. So he's not alone. Many African-Americans have an anti-black mentality. And to the point that they disassociate themselves from anything that's viewed as the African-American culture. Now, a part of this is to um, criticize other blacks and the black culture in general. Shit, hell, you might get cussed out if you ask them about soul food. But there's also a more subtle form of self-hatred uh, that's being, and, and, and you can see that when you're in a conversation with, with with black folks who brag about being a descendant from the bloodline of African kings and queens, yet they are shameful or ashamed of owning the genealogical um, era of slavery. That's a part of who we are. And the essence of our strength it just, it puzzles me. It, it it really does. There was an editorial that appeared in the Chicago uh, Crusader uh, and the, the title of it is One Cause of Black Self-Hatred. And this article noted that a lot of self-hatred exists within the black community. The article really points out that while we casually talk about it, it continues to thrive within our communities. I said that earlier. And as evidence, the article points to black-on-black murders, the light skin, dark skin issues that I talked about earlier. And it also pointed out that many black businesses treat black customers worse than they treat other customers of other races. In the article, it said that this ultimately really contributed to the scarcity of viable black businesses within our own communities. You know, I I get the whole poor customer service argument, but this thing is radically crazy. While we complain about mis- being mistreated uh, from black-owned businesses, we will repeatedly get treated like shit by other ethnic business owners, and we will still continue to spend money with them. On the flip side, black folks will go into a, a small black-owned business with the expectation of getting the hookup. you know, uh, and they will be—they're—they're they're literally more critical intolerant, impatient, and disrespectful of a black owned business than they are with other ethnic group businesses. So this whole thing is whack. And just to paraphrase producer Jawan Lee, he said, we play the role of the victim and the victimizer, the slave and the slave master, the oppressed and the oppressor. Think about that for a minute. The relational dynamics between black and white America uh, is wholly strange and it's plagued with layers upon layers of bullshit propaganda and disfigured truth. The Chicago Crusader, the article that I was reading, it also suggested that a black self-hatred is partially due to the miseducation of African-American culture, where the backstory of our identity, uh, our contributions and our competencies have been primarily narrated by the white version of historical events. And so, you know, again, I'll propose that the struggle of black self-hatred is again, evidence of the Willie Lynch indoctrination. I'll also propose that those who obsess over white approval and acceptance are much like sufferers of Stockholm syndrome, where a bond of loyalty uh, that evolves into desiring the approval and adoration of our captors, our abusers, our executioners, our rapists, our oppressors. So now, you know, there's a bond that they have with them opposed to their own culture and ancestors. But you know what? Our, our continued desperate pursuit for equality through white approval and acceptance has cost us dearly. Many gifts and talents within the black community go underdeveloped and unexpressed or worse, they're prostituted for white gain. Now, whether it's a conversation about Willie Lynch indoctrination, post-traumatic slave syndrome, the toxic racial stresses of Jim Crow, which seems to be rearing its ugly ass head in, in the 21st century, or Stockholm syndrome, one thing is clear, the protests, rallies, riots, and other Black life Matter expressions are voices that affirm no one can hear a song of freedom and remain silent. But we have yet to fight our biggest fight, undoing the historical brainwashing and the traumas that continue to marginalize us as African-American and as human beings. We keep loving this country, and this country doesn't love us back. So let's try something we haven't really invested a lot of emotional energy on. Focus on us, to heal us, and to build for us. Ah, that music means it's time for The World According to Penny. No doubt, as African Americans, we have come a long way in overcoming the physical barriers of racism by gaining pseudo-freedom. However, the current landscape of 2020 has given us clear sight on how fragile our racial advancement or freedom really is. The work I'm dedicated to is not really directed to everyone. I know that there are African-Americans out there who are movers and shakers. I I get it. You've found your rhythm and you're making shit happen and I honor your efforts. And so I'm really not talking to you. I'm committed to the thousands of African Americans who see ourselves as common, ordinary, insignificant, nothing special about us. Yet we have an extraordinary call on our lives to redeem the soul of America. We feel the call of our life's purpose. Every now and then we're even inspired to give our mind permission to indulge in envisioning the possibilities of achieving our purpose. But our constant companions, fear and self-doubt will shut all of that down real quick. So how far have we really come to rectify the the historical and collective toxic racial stresses inflicted on the African-American psyche? The kind of toxic stressors that trigger a fear toward our own successes. Stressors that repress our creative genius and perpetuate conflict and strife within our community. I will keep saying this again and again. While my focus is on healing the historical ouch within the African-American community, make no mistake, white America struggles with their own kind of psychological imprisonment. A day of reckoning is approaching when white privilege will be called into accountability for its historical actions. There are debts due, promises, and obligations that must be paid. When I was doing research for this show, a, a troubling thought got stuck in my thought cycle. <laughs> Follow me for a minute. The year 1619, and it marked the beginning of a, a very sadistic, emotional relationship between African and white Americans. To date, it remains a complicated, intimate relationship forged by brutal violence, dominance, rape, and psychological terror. For hundreds of years, both Africans and white Americans have played their roles as master, slave, superior, inferior, abuser, and victim. They've played these roles and they've been playing them for so long. I wonder if it's, if, if equality is even possible. But then I think if the greatest fear of white America is their loss of dominance and privilege, could the greatest fear of African-Americans be to gain our absolute sovereign power and privilege? More importantly, is freedom, justice, and equality primarily a physical state of being or is it a mental state? Some may argue that it's both, but I would strongly disagree because the key word here is primarily. It's often said that our strongest muscle and our worst enemy is our mind. Change the mind and the body will follow. Change the spirit and the heart of a person and reality will shift. So regardless of whether we want to admit it or not, our internal self, our innermost temperament drives everything we do. No amount of protests or righteous indignation directed at external forces will give us the freedom we want because the freedom we want is not a civil right hinging on laws that can be overturned by anybody's thought process. Freedom is inherent. It is endowed to each of us by our creator, whoever that is for you. That that freedom is an inalienable right that includes life, self-sufficiency, and to pursue what gives us significance and joy. We, We really have to stop and ask ourselves that if this is the freedom that we truly want, are we psychologically prepared to stop obsessing over gaining the acceptance of white America? Are we prepared to stop feeling obligated to give them a leadership position on our boards or get their blessings on our social advancements or to stop thinking that having a a few white folks in our inner circle somehow gives us more credibility? You know what? Now that I think about it, many old white male imperialists got extremely angry and repeatedly criticized President Obama because he didn't ask them to be a part of his inner circle of confidants. And while he might have asked for their input or feedback, he took ownership of the final decision. And that pisses them off. I appreciate you tuning in to another episode of Straight Vibes, No Chasers. And I certainly hope you keep listening and grow with me in this journey. And so if you like the show, do me a favor, leave me a comment about the topic or topics that you're interested in. Also, you can visit my website, PennyMurray.com. Go to the podcast page to read the transcript of my closing thoughts. Uh, You can also find out more about my work and other ways to stay connected and engaged. So for next week's show, it's said that elevation requires separation. So join me for part two of Can You Hear Freedom's Song and Remain Silent? And that's where I'm going to get into the first stage of the rite of passage, separation. Remember, You are never the victim of life. You are always the student of purpose. So what skill or higher consciousness are you learning? What task or message are you being prepared for? Again, thanks for listening. And as always, I leave you with my closing assertion for your life. You are, as spirit created you, endowed with power and authority to manifest positive outcomes and the divine wisdom to bring about meaningful change. So give yourself permission to trust, live, create, and speak your life's truth. Ashe.
0: You've been listening to Straight Vibes No Chasers with Dr. Penny Murray. Listen and subscribe to our podcast from your mobile device with your favorite podcast app. If you have any questions, topic ideas, comments, I want to invite Dr. Murray to speak at your next event. Go to contact us at PennyMary.com. If you're in the North Dallas, Texas area, we invite you to become a member of the inner wellness community by taking part of the African American Council on Fear.